Hello and welcome to this, the 50th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I'm your host, the father of the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally. I'm Angus McAnally Senior, to give me my proper title. Uh, former artistic director of Ashley Productions, a freelance actor, musician and comedian. Uh, more notably, I suppose, an RTE broadcaster and producer. I'm a 40-year veteran of the Irish entertainment scene and a second-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we're coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. What a sense of deja vu there is with this opening. Uh, Each week, Rise Productions brings you this podcast absolutely free of charge. Oh, yawn, yawn, yawn. Uh, They've promised you that they'll never charge for these interviews, but they are looking for you to put your hard-earned money back into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind the podcast, allegedly, uh, to support, promote and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And as you all know by now, What is the easiest way for you to support? Well, go and buy yourself some tickets, preferably, I'd have to say this week, uh, to a Rise Productions show. They're at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf for the rest of this week, then at Carl Shields Theatre upstairs at Lanigan's uh, the week after next. But wherever you are, go and support your local theatre. If by any chance you find that tickets are beyond your reach this week or this month, why not go and check out one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie, where donations there can start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards in return. Of course, there are ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Why don't you go and tell people about this podcast? Whether that's in person, over a cup of coffee, by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or retweeting the link on Twitter. You could always subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. You could go back and listen to all the other episodes. Uh, You could leave a review on iTunes or simply click to rate it on the five-star rating system. As I hear Angus Oak saying, it makes such a difference. You know, it gets us up there and gives us a priority. We want you to do that. (laughs) And as ever, you can like Rise Productions on Facebook. They are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. And that's all one word. Or, of course, you can follow them on Twitter. They're at Rise Ireland. And so we come to this week's guest on the podcast. And you've probably figured out by now that if I'm actually doing the introduction, me, uh, Angus McAnally, well then the guest is none other than that wonderful, young, vibrant, dynamic actor and son of mine, actually, uh, Angus Og McAnally. And I managed to catch up with him in the midst of his extraordinarily busy schedule between his life as a voiceover artist, a fight night, uh, incredible actor, director, producer, yawn, 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 so busy. Yeah, I could do it between three and four, maybe on Tuesday week. Well, anyway, when I got talking to him, I first asked him about his first knowledge and memory of getting into theatre. Well, what an honour this is for me to be in the company of the wonderful... It's so hard to say Fuck that. Off. Okay, right, right. Right, come on, let's go. Okay, no, no, that's us. Let's go. This is it. We're on. Okay, all right. Well, anyway, I've listened to you week after week, and everybody is wonderful, you know? Yeah, I know. Um, that's it. So we call you the wonderful Angus Og McAnally, or the Drizzler, and more of that uh, anon when we get to it. Yeah, I have to say, before we even get into it, right, let's be straight up about this. I, for a long time, was definitely planning on not allowing myself be a guest on the show because everyone was asking for it and I was going to definitely not do it on the basis that I really really wanted to and I thought that would be a terrible reason then to go ahead and do it but people did want me to do it I thought okay look if we're going to get out of here for the 50th one what actually happened was as people have heard me say on the podcast before Colt Cabana the American wrestler uh, whose format I have ripped off wholeheartedly for this and I do encourage anybody (laughs) to go and listen to his podcast if they get a chance Um, for his episode 100 they finally let he finally decided that he would go and be the guest on that episode and he got his best mate world champion CM Punk to interview him and it was at that point that I went oh balls now I've no choice if Colt has done it then I have to do it and once I knew I was doing it there was only one man to do the interview so uh, I'm delighted you were here but yes the ego has landed I have given in and we're going to do it so, well I have to say that I, it's, I have no intention of being reverential to you now because <laughs> this is payback time perhaps but I do respect in fairness I do actually respect what you've done over the last year because right. the amount of people that I've met who have said this is a fantastic resource it is great for us to get a no holds barred 
kind of look behind the scenes at people, at actors, at all practitioners of theatre. And obviously, yeah. I presume from this family growing up that you've seen everybody and every style of theatre, every person from front of house to backstage to you know scenic artists to foley yeah. artists, directors, writers, producers, all of that. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing that people like about the podcast, um, that they can tell that first and foremost, I am a fan. Like when I'm, you know, bigging everybody up each week and going, and it's the wonderful this or the wonderful that, and it's because I genuinely believe that stuff. Um, I am a massive fan of theatre and it's like uh, I still love going and paying my 20 or 30 quid to go and see a Kathy Belton or an Owen Rowe or whoever go and work their magic on stage because I'm a big fan of them like I love going to watch Declan Connell I love going to watch whoever the fact that they also happen to be my mates and you know co-workers at times mm-hmm. is a beautiful advantage to it but I am first and foremost a big fan of theatre and obviously that did come that love of theatre came from growing up in within this family, you know, because just being exposed to it from a very early age, um, it, 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 it instilled it in me from very early on. I mean, like, okay, yes, it was a strange childhood. It's a very odd... What do you mean? What? Hang on a second. <laughs> what are you saying? Well, no, Social is. services, get away from the door, please. No, it is. It was a very odd childhood because there's a thing where, for most kids, Monday to Friday, dad's off being a bank manager or working in an advertising office or whatever it is he does. Uh, and then on Saturday mornings, you go and you play football and kick around the park. Well, I spent every Saturday morning with my dad. It just happened to be through a TV screen because you were always on Anything Goes for that... From you know, 80 to 86. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, and I was born in 1980. So that, you know, that early childhood stuff... Uh, yes, I spent every Saturday with you, but it was through the TV. Um, and then even like really surreal stuff, like around the time of your dad's death, um, the very, very odd situation of, of TV cameras at a, at a family funeral is just is a weird thing because in your head, you're still an eight-year-old kid um, dealing with your granddad being dead. And yet there's TV cameras and press photographers and it's front page news and all that stuff of us having to be, you know, whisked around to the auntie's house and, you know, not being able to watch TV and stuff because it might break on the news before you got a chance to tell us. That's kind of a surreal way to grow up. But that's kind of the weird end of it. The brilliant end of it was that you got exposed to all this magical stuff. Like I remember either, you know, knocking around the Abbey with Mam growing up or um, like playing in the Wanderly Wagon around RTE with you on days, you know. Um, And that... That end of it was was phenomenal, and meeting these incredible people from the world of showbiz, um, and it was never that because it was the norm to me that I took it for granted. Like I still viewed those people as kind of special people, and I loved that. That that's that's really what kind of lit the spark for me in terms of going into it. I tell you what, I don't know still right is whether it's nurture or nature. Yeah. You know, you see sons and daughters of medical people being in medicine, lawyers, accountants, whatever. Yeah. Is it that to which you're exposed or is it in fact partly in the genes? And I actually genuinely don't know the difference. Well, I don't know either. I mean, okay, you look at your family, it's, you know, some of the kids in your family went into the business, some of them didn't. Uh, you look at me and Andy, my brother, uh, I went into the business, Andy didn't. So, I mean, we had the same upbringing, we had the same opportunities, we were exposed to the same stuff, but some of us chose to take it up professionally and some of us chose not to. Um, so I think, I, I don't know the answer to that question mm. either. Um, I know, I, like I know that there is an element of of natural talent. I mean, you look at Andy, my brother, your son, who is the most exceptional guitar player I've ever come across. Like when I was, you know, 15, 16 and a massive Oasis fan, I'd be coming home to Andy as a nine-year-old kid or a 10-year-old kid with Morning Glory, sticking the CD in and saying, Andy, teach me that song. And he'd listen to it once and go, well, obviously that's CG or whatever. Yeah. You know, like he has this exceptional talent. So I guess there is a huge amount of nature in, of, yeah, just nature, whatever. He also has a brilliant directorial note um, if you think back to when as Ashley Productions uh, yes, we indeed. used to do a show in Mosney every week and both you and Andy were in the show back in the 90s this is very and true I remember spent youth indeed I remember Andy at I think he would have been eight right uh, he said to me because I, I used to do the finale it was my you know, star of the show actor <laughs> and I'd pull the tabs do a quick costume change and come out and do the finale and he said dad do you mind me saying he said you know when you close the curtains I said yep he said, you begin to lose the audience there because they think the show is over and they start putting on their coats and getting their kids ready. Then you've changed your jacket, the curtains open, and he said, you have to work harder to get back to where you were before you close the curtains. And he said, why don't you? Because we had two flats that um, yeah. I think Eddie Doyle had actually painted yeah, for us. I remember them well. He said, with the mask, the theatrical mask, why don't you have a coat set 
uh, on a hanger there and literally walk with the radio mic on talking do the change come out and go straight into the finale and that's Brilliant. what I did and he was eight at that it. stage yeah. and I mean now he's given me great advice in my career and is looking after my dates now which is uh, that's amazing so anyway but, but, I love, but I love the fact that that's there for you so I mean I guess that is a part of it that you know nature is a huge part of it there is something kind of innately in you uh, but it is a question of you know what you choose to then go and go and do with it and obviously for me I had started working when I was only a teenager like I was 15 when I started doing yeah, but can I go back before that, Angus? Because um, I remember accompanying you to St. Pat's College in <laughs> Drumcondra, where you were yes, doing indeed. on Fahok, I think it was. Yes, with the great Mrs. Waters. Mrs. Waters. And that was in sixth class in primary, and you got Best Actor in the I in that whole win, festival, I, I think. I did win the Best Actor Award in yeah. that, behind a, a full face mask as well, which wasn't bad going. Yeah, and yeah. I also remember you, uh, when the Archbishop came to Fort Marno, <laughs> that hell. you were uh, the person who would acknowledge him. And i never forget the moment where you're going, and of course we the young children of Barbaric are delighted to welcome the bishop and you looked uh, stage right and nodded and went bishop like that with a little look in your eye and that has stayed with me so th- that was there from an early young age yeah like there, there is a thing I think you can't fight it and if, if you were religious you might refer to it as a God given talent like I don't know what that is there's a, a some kind of a genetic propensity mm. whatever to to the world of show business or whatever you know and I, and, I, and I do love it and I remember like on our first day in secondary school in Port Marnock uh, the careers guidance people coming around and saying, you know, what is it you want to do? And on that, like, then whatever I was twelve at that stage. At that stage, the list at that time was one actor and two TV presenter. Now, weirdly, I never had any desire to do what you do because I'm terrified by it. And to this day, like the whole podcasting thing and you know the the gas stuff that I was hosting online, all that stuff is is deeply unnatural for me. That's not. A, a realm where I feel comfortable or at home or I feel like I excel. It's something that I do, I and mean, also we'll talk about the podcast later on probably, but it's something that I do because I have to. Yes, rather than because it's not I, an innate part of who no, and what really you are. Not, and, it's, and it's something why I've always had massive respect for what you do, because because uh, I if you give me four weeks rehearsal and a script and allow me to be someone else up on stage, I'll happily do that for you all day. That Nothing makes me happier. But going up there as me, I, find, I still find deeply uncomfortable. And it's why when you get the phone call from the Gaia Club to say, listen, Engel, we have a charity night on Saturday, whatever. Mm. Will you come up and host it? Will you do the raffle first? Will you host this? Will you? And you always want to say yes because you don't let the club down because I'm still a diehard Gaia fan, even if I am the worst Gaelic footballer of all time. You know, you want to say yes, but they kind of presume that, oh, sure, you do all that acting stuff, you'd be grand at that. And I'm still deeply uncomfortable. I'm getting better at it because mm. I'm getting more used to it, but I find it really hard. You were about to mention when you were 15 and you, you started professionally, in a sense, yeah. working. And I don't know whether I was just very busy, but I don't recall too much of suddenly hearing that you're in the Cuckullen Cycles, yeah. which is playing in Dublin, Phyllis yeah. Ryan and all the gang. Yeah. And then suddenly then you're heading to London and you're only 15. Yeah, I mean, that was a weird thing. like Because I, I, I had been auditioning for a while before that, because I had started doing the Gaiety School of Acting, not kind of the grown of course but doing like when I was 10 or 11 I was doing stuff in there on Saturdays and then at kind of 15, 16 went and did the Betty Ann Norton Theatre School which I know kind of people for generations have come through um, and so around that time because you are enrolled in those schools they kind of also act as your agent uh, and so when there's parts coming up for kids they're putting you up for stuff so I remember auditioning for stuff at 11 and 12 and 13 and to this day I am so grateful that I never got any of those gigs because I know there was an early incarnation of the Butcher Boy, I think when Neil Jordan was looking at doing it, uh, and I was in the mix for that. Now, not that I, I don't know how close it ever got, but that we were back for a couple of recalls and whatever else. And I do think that if I had started working professionally at 12 or 13 or 14, I would be an even more obnoxious bollocks than I am now. No, no, is, no, I don't, I don't think that's actually possible. <laughs> uh, no, I really do. And so I'm, I'm very grateful. So I was, like I was 15 when I started working professionally. And I think that's about the limit. If, I, if any of my kids uh, ever wanted to go into the business, I, I do think that's about the limit for where I'd let people go for it. And how difficult was it to come back from there at 15, having played, was it the Riverbank <laughs> or somewhere? Yeah, uh, no, or, well, it, took a, it took a while before we took it to London. We were 15, I was 15 about to go 16 doing right. it here in Dublin uh, we did a revival in Dublin possibly the following year and then maybe later that year did it in London so I was I'm like I was certainly 16 if not 17 that's how you take it over to London my point is coming back from there horrific. and going back to school Absolutely and you know, making sure your tie was straight well, and being up the there that, at 9 o'clock that was o'clock. the thing that got me and it used to drive me demented because um, because at 16 
you feel like you're an adult because you're drinking and kissing girls and doing whatever what? you're doing. Sorry, Dad. Here comes a few <laughs> confessions. You know, but you're doing whatever it is you're doing and you feel like a grown-up. And particularly, you know, if you're on set with Donald McCann and Pierce Brosnan or, or something like that and you're being treated as an adult, like, you know, you're not there as an equal because you're still a 15-year-old kid who hasn't, you know, much experience. But on a movie set or on a stage, you're there because you can do the gig and you're there playing opposite these people. Um, and so there's an element of respect towards that for you as an actor because you're there to do a job, you, you know. Um, and the idea of being treated like a grown-up on set or on stage in a theatre and then going back to school and like you say, being, you know, where's your tie? Why isn't your top button done? Why are you wearing white socks instead of grey socks? I just feel like going, fuck off. Like if I stand up on the desk in the middle of a maths class and do a tap dance, that's interrupting other people's learning it's interrupting the teacher doing the teaching it's interrupting my learning whatever else that's fine I buy that but if I don't have my tie on what the fuck difference does that make to anybody do you know what I mean like, and that is purely it's why they use uniforms in schools and it's why they use uniforms in prison it is about crowd control and that's all it is yeah, and it's, and that's it, it has to stop anarchy because oh, why? Fuck it. No, well no there has to be a level of because if if it was a free for all completely yeah right Okay, it's why somebody has to direct a play. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right, don't uh, get me with that one. Okay, no, but you, you can't have every single member of the cast say, actually, no, we'll do this. this no, one. I'm going to stand over I, here. I've no, I'll stand in, here. I've been okay. in shows like that. So, I mean, somebody has, to be, <laughs> somebody has to be in charge, you know? Yeah, no, I did, I did find it tough coming back. Um, but, but I have to say, th- those experiences of being, uh, of working professionally, kind of 15, 16, 17, were great. And shows like that Cuhullen show that Michael Scott directed, which is just phenomenal. Um, and the experience of being in that, and then, and, you know, all that stuff that I did around that time, I still look back on really warmly, but it was really interesting because at the time I presumed, because uh, I, I had, had a choice then, look, are you going to, obviously you're going to go and do this professionally, this is what you want to do to pay the bills, um, but I, I could have just kept on working, I could have finished school at 18 and said, right, that's it, I'm now an actor, I'm going and doing it, but I did make the decision that I wanted to train because I felt it really important. And how important was the Trinity course then? Because I'm only a second generation, you're a third generation, <laughs> okay? In the sense of, I had to listen to people going, when I started in the music business, oh, right, and have you not got a real job? Or, yeah. you know, I mean, I left school in 1972, went straight on the road playing in Mushroom, yeah. a traditional rock group. Uh, I didn't do any university education. At least you did. But I remember the time when you started going to Trinity and people saying, what exactly is he doing? And you're saying, well, he's doing this... Well, they do dancing, and they, you know, and <laughs> yeah. they learn how to the craft of acting. But I mean, what's the degree? And there, there was certainly a snobbish element going around of this is not hey, listen, a real degree course or there whatever. Was a, there was a fucking snobbish element from within the college as well, don't forget. And it's, you know, I, I'd still think it's a crying shame that that course was let go. When you think about the people who came through it over the years, I mean, before me and after me. Ruth, you know, Aaron, Obviously, Ruthie and yourself. Aaron from my gang. But even going back the ways with people like Charlie Bonner and right the way back before that, and, and people more recently, you know, exceptional actors came through there. Um, and, and it was let go. And I have to say, in terms of being let go, and this may not be a popular uh, opinion, but I do think a big part for being let go is that there was no political will within the drama department to keep it and this is controversial and I shouldn't be saying it it's going to bite me in the ass but fuck it I'm a grown up I can do what I want um, I don't think there was political will within the drama department in Trinity to keep that course because it was so expensive because if you look at a standard drama lecture hall mm. you can stick 40, 50, 60, 70 150 but you had what 12 or 14 or well, 15 yeah, or... yeah limited classes and so just the pupil teacher ratio becomes uh, you know a more costly thing uh, the nature of the spaces you need to use, putting on full-scale productions becomes a more expensive thing. It's an expensive course to do. And I do think there may have been a sense from within the department of, well, if these actors go, all those uh, resources will then be there for us to divvy up and we'll be better off. I mean, don't forget, like there were times um, where we were walking in, because we did have some academic elements of what we did in that course. But there were times, I remember walking into lecture halls and the lecturers at the front of the room going, oh, here come the actors, right, go on down the back and sleep. And... We kind of went, well, okay, then we will, because <laughs> we didn't give a shit. But, but it was a thing of, uh, that there was a, a marked difference of, a, of in opinion and approach uh, to those of us who were the actors who had got in on talent and audition and the people who'd locked themselves in a room and got 500 and No, but I, th- I think you're rewriting history a little bit there because my memory of those years with you as yeah. a student was that it was extraordinarily disciplined, that you oh, had yeah. to be in every day. You were doing eight, nine-hour, yeah. ten-hour days. And uh, was it one person actually w- wasn't performing and they were I not thrown out? Yeah, no, yeah, that stuff happened. That stuff happened. They, but I'm so so okay, that's, that's not sleeping down the back of the class taking no, a, sorry, as a dot. Okay, that, well, that's a split between the practical vocational yes. end yeah, we were yeah, doing yeah. the hands-on like you say dance classes singing classes movement classes acting classes voice classes all that stuff that was ridiculously rigorous but the um, but the academic end of it w- was kind of an add-on and it was there because an institution like Trinity that 
even at that stage hadn't a huge track record of that kind of conservatory style vocational training needed to have some element of academia attached to it so they could kind of get it straight in their heads like no it's okay we can still give them a degree for this that's fine and they could kind of rationalize it um but look i have to say you know even within the academic end of things you know people the likes of brian singleton and stuff were brilliant like there were an awful lot of really great lecturers and professors and teacher, teachers in there and of course the, you know the hands-on guys that we had were just incredible andrea ainsworth our voice coach who obviously we've had as a guest on the podcast um you know was so influential in what we did and it's why you know things like when emerald kelly doing a review for fight like and saying that the vocal technique was so great i was delighted by that not for me but for andrea because you're kind of going you know well that's all down to her and you know you look at my voiceover career which Jesus, thanks be to God, it's there because making a living as a theatre actor is, if not impossible, really fucking difficult. And the voiceover thing is a huge help. And that's all down to Andrea as well. But you look at people like Peter McAllister, who, you know, unfortunately we only had for a limited time because he was nearly, he was on his way out as we were coming in. We were the last of kind of his hand-picked group and the last to kind of have him as a, as a tutor. And I say us, we were that mythical year that we didn't know it at the time but even within trinity at the time they they knew they had something special we didn't because they didn't tell us and they were right not to tell us but when you have judith roddy aaron monaghan ruth nega lisa lamb angus McAnally, brian malarkey and the list goes on and on mm. like, you know a lot of the guys are now over in london base or whatever else but it was just this incredible group of of actors um, you know Vicky Burke like who I'm still really good mates with like apart from the fact that we worked so closely together and became really close as mates um, you know these were these were phenomenal performers uh, and it's like when a really good footballer goes to play for Real Madrid or Man United uh, when you're playing with and against the best it raises your game and whether you know you've got someone who's a great mover uh, over there and they're bringing the class up in movement you've got someone who's really good at interpreting text and poetry and they bring everybody up there you've got someone who's just a real you know, emotionally instinctive actor, and you see someone doing that there, and it brings everybody along. It was like just a massively valuable time. It is brilliant that you are well trained, and it's yeah. something about which I'm very proud because I remember talking to my dad, your yeah. grandfather, Ray McAnally, when I told him that I wanted to be in the music business when I was 15, and he said, I don't care what you do with your life professionally, all that I ask is that you be the best that you can be in yeah. it. And I think, fair play to you, you have done exactly that. Um, without talking about me for a moment, but uh, <laughs> I spent most of my career, or have spent most of my career, thankfully working to big crowds and conventions yep. and large crowds, doing maybe sort of comedy or chat or whatever. Yeah. A big education for me in the last 18 months was to play a one-man show. Yes. Okay. Uh, when Jolie met Christie, where I was acting and singing and playing to smaller crowds than I would normally have worked to. Yeah. And yet making people laugh and cry and inverted commas acting yeah. right? I began to get an appreciation for what it is that you do yeah. and it was so fulfilling for me but I wonder do you get the same thing from standing on a stage do, do you divorce yourself from what the audience is feeling do you need them to be moved do you care no it's, it's all about the audience genuinely everything I do is about the audience um, uh, it it, because and this comes back to my major love of pro wrestling um, which I've spoken about once or twice in the podcast but uh, it is all about the audience and the thing about with pro wrestling is if you are working the crowd properly if you are taking them on that emotional journey and kind of roller coasters and switching them around in the good versus evil thing um, most of pro wrestling whilst the ending is predetermined it's actually choreographed on the hoof in the ring it's like contact improv that we would have done in dance classes um, and so you get what they refer to as a ring general which would be usually the, the more senior wrestler and usually the, the bad guy um, will dictate the match as he goes based on crowd reaction which is the same thing that a stand-up does if you know certain material is working or certain material isn't working and you'll kind of surf that wave and uh, in general for theatre but specifically with a one-man show particularly with something like Fight Night where it is direct address to the audience for the most part it's, it's old-style shanaki storytelling really is what it is um, then it is absolutely of prime importance that the audience is getting that and that you're and that you're working with them so the the beautiful thing about that when it comes to something like fight night is that the audience becomes the other actor on stage because i never had any desire to do a one-man show some people have a massive ego go wouldn't it be great all the lights on me all the applause for me at the end never in my life did i want to do um 
a one-man show. I never want to do the first, I never want to do any really Rise production show, to be honest with you. But it's a question of, I couldn't get anybody else to work for nothing, so I had to put myself into it. Um, but that thing of, of working an audience is absolutely important, and I still get it every night with the show. I mean, back to doing the show at the moment, the show changes every night because the audience is different every night. And that's lovely because I do miss having an actor on stage with me to keep it fresh, keep it different. Um, but that's what the audience does for me, which is great. I want to ask you two questions about Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, the first one, and it goes back to Andrea Ainsworth, I suppose, in a sense, um, I've seen many young actors now, perhaps maybe in places like Fair City. Yeah. And what you hear and see in Fair City is their entire career. Yes. Their voice, their ability to speak. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> Nothing else. Yeah. It's one dimension. Okay. For me, one of the great things about what you do is that you can play Shakespeare, but also in Fight Night, you are completely believable as a semi-scangery young fella boxing or whatever. Yeah. Okay, so you've got that range. That's the first thing. So I think the training is really important for the voice and the, the ability to be able to speak properly. Sure, yeah. But secondly, um, and I'm probably going to alienate a whole load of people listening. Oh, Christ, I, go on. I don't get Shakespeare. Oh, that's grand. You know, I find it tough going yeah. no matter when I see it and yet you particularly are on my right in thinking you love Shakespeare yeah I do the thing I always say about Shakespeare is it is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest job you'll have as an actor uh, and that winds actors up sometimes they go how can you say it's easy because it's not I go well no it, it, it's it's like I, I liken it to the, the cutting weight for fight night that I have to that I have to do each time I come back to do fight night because I get so fat in between um, losing weight is not easy but it's very simple in that it's very straightforward it's calories burned off versus calories taken in. I mean, the laws of physics don't change. And it's the same with Shakespeare. It is simultaneously, simultaneously the hardest and the easiest thing you'll do. It's easiest because the entire roadmap is on the page for you. He was a genius writer, and I don't care if it was him, him and someone else, a whole conglomerate of writers. Or somebody else with the same name. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I, don't, I don't give a shit who it was. Those plays are exceptional, and the reason they're still done 400 years later is because they stand the test of time, because human nature doesn't change. Um, but his style of writing, uh, is so perfect the way that verse is structured it's why I've, I mean, I've done a huge amount of verse work you think like talking back to that Cuhullen cycle the first show I ever did as a 15 year old kid was the full five um, cycle of Cuhullen yes. plays by Yeats which is all in verse as well well mind you the burial at Thebes I didn't even hear the yeah, verse exactly well that's the thing and, and it's when you deal with someone who's as good as Yeats uh, who was a Nobel Prize winner or someone who's as good as Heaney, who's a Nobel Prize winner. Um, they know how to they know how to structure a play properly and they know how to structure the verse properly. Um, and so with Shakespeare, that verse structure is there for you. So the roadmap is on the t is on the page. All you have to do is do it. And that's where the hard part is. So the simple thing is it's there on the page. Just do what he asks you. Um, the hard part is being able to do that and having the emotional flexibility and vocal flexibility and whatever else to, to make that happen. Um, but that's, that's why I love it. But it was the same with Seamus Heaney. And I remember going into that audition and there's Patrick Mason opposite you, you know, Tony Award winning director. And I, when I got the phone call about that, weirdly, it's the only time in my life it ever happened. I got the phone call to say, look, you've got an audition for this, it's in the Abbey, whatever else. And it'd be a, it had been a while since I'd been in the Abbey. Or no, I was doing Romeo and Juliet at the time. And that was the first time I'd been in, in a couple of years, maybe. Um, and I got the phone call about Barry the Thieves and I just went, I'm getting that gig. And I don't know why that switch went in my head, but it did. It's like, I'm getting that gig. And I worked my ass off for it, like really properly worked. Um, and, and, like, and like that worked the verse, worked the line endings, worked whatever else. Um, and I went in to do the audition. And on a spur of the moment thing, and to this day I don't know why I chose to do it, spur of the moment, as I walked in the door, I made a decision that I would play it to Patrick, play him, use him as a kind of a scene partner in it, which I ordinarily wouldn't do for a long monologue thing like that in a in an audition situation but I chose to do it that day I don't know why uh, but it worked and so I, and, and I was about to start and he says okay here so do you want to copy the script I said no I'm grand he said well just have it anyway to have it in your hand I said no I'm, I'm, I'm grand um, and, and lashed into it and, and it worked and what I, 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 want, I did what I had wanted to do going into the audition um, and after that you kind of go like if you, if you achieve what you set out to do then that's grand. If they want someone five foot five and with blonde hair, I'm not going to get the gig. But if you've done if you've done it justice, you know you've given yourself the best chance possible. So we finish it, and he just looked at me and he went, "Wow, I see Andrew Ainsworth has done a great job with you." And I went, "Really?" He says, "Yeah, you're you." And I started talking about the use of line endings and stuff like that, and just using the roadmap that was there on the page. And it's about having respect for a good writer. If you're going to get the brilliant opportunity and be 
blessed in inverted commas uh, to work on a script like that have the fucking sense to use it have the sense to give you what's there because you get it with Shakespeare as well when people are kind of working it goes oh this bit isn't working I can't make it happen you go stop doing what you think it should be just do what it actually is and yeah and it takes a while did you to get that ego out of the way but when you do it you go oh that's what he wants you to do and then it's there and right. that's great I grew up obviously in a situation where I was a McAnally. Yeah. Luckily for me, I suppose I started in the music business. Uh, no competition to dad, yep. my dad. Um, but the name obviously meant something. Sure. And there was an expectation of people say to me, "Did it open doors?" Uh, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, perhaps it was a more familiar surname, but also there was an expectation of quality yeah. or discipline or whatever. That's one level of it. If you add another level then, and unfortunately, I suppose we have to apologise your mother and I to you now, 32 years later, by 31. calling you... Okay, 31, nearly 32. Yeah, nearly 32. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, you're born in December. I'm of... playing 28 in fight night. As long as I can play 28, okay, I'm doing right. all right. Over 30 years ago, <laughs> right. you were called Angus Old McAnally, so you have the yeah. same name as me. Yeah. How much of a pain in the ass was that? Oh, look, it's on my own head. Like, when I, when I was 15, I landed those gigs, the, you know, the... It was the nephew that came first. I landed the movie, which was the Pierce Brosnan and Donald McCann movie. Imagine your first day in a movie set, a scene opposite Donald McCann, going, yeah, okay, fine, that's just what it's going to be. <laughs> That'll do. Um, uh, so I chose at that time, because we're going to stage it, because obviously I couldn't be Angus McAnally, which is what I am in real life, really. I, like, I'm not Angus Ogan in real life. I'm, I'm Angus Ogan when I'm working, um, which obviously isn't as big a shift like to Michael Caine or something like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, in my head, I'm Angus McAnally. Um, but we had to make the decision of what the stage name would be because you were in equity ahead of me and I couldn't use that. Uh, and so we ranged from all kinds of different ones. And I know at one stage there was a talk of, because my middle name is Raymond, would I go as Ray McAnally? Which I think was very instantly poo-pooed. So, yeah, just set yourself up for that fall. Yeah, know, yeah. Why don't you? The Good three, move. The three best actor BAFTAs might come and smack you in the mm. head. Anyway, so uh, so I made the decision at 15. I thought, no, fuck it, it is what it is. I am very proud of the lineage and the heritage and where I've come from and the support that's been given to me over the years. I'm Angus O. McAnally. I'm nailing my colours to the mast. Um, and I know I, I don't regret doing it. I think the og thing is a funny thing. I mean, certainly because internationally you start getting into issues with the og, og and yeah, og all and that stuff. Enough. Um and also just the idea that uh, while og is junior, og is also young and and maybe that puts you in a in a particular pigeonhole. Sean I know. is in his 80s. <laughs> I know. I know. Um but uh, you know, so there's there's that there, but no, I don't mind. I'm I'm intensely proud of of where I've come from. And and, and you know, simple things like the idea that your parents met on the Abbey stage. You and Billy Martin and me, we met on, on the, the Abbey stage. stage. You know, that kind of stuff. So you, know, like that, you know, a history with a building like that, um, a history within the industry, means a lot to me. And it's one of those things, uh, here goes the clang of a name drop. When I was in New York training with Anne Bogart, um, all that Suzuki-style training of all the stamping on the floor of the stage um, is about you know, summoning up the spirits of the people who have gone before you. Um, and while that's a nice kind of metaphorical thing, it, within that Japanese context, it's absolutely a literal thing because they would, the cremated remains of the actors, which was always a family business, were buried under the stage. So as you stamped on those wooden floorboards, the clouds of dust that were coming up weren't just clouds of dust. It was literally, not figuratively, the spirits of the ancestors had gone before you. And that's a big thing. That's a big thing that comes through from pro wrestling as well. That you know, there's a, there's a huge batch of third generation wrestlers now as well. Um, and there's just something about that carny stuff yeah, I think of but, passing it down through the family but is there not a point when you go into the Abbey Theatre and yeah. you go for a costume fitting you're in Plough the Stars or yeah. in your case or whatever and they take out a suit or whatever and my dad's name Ray McAnally yeah. and you go give me a break look I'm me I like, go away no, leave me alone like, let all. me establish me for me no genuinely not like when we were in for the, the, the house the Tom Murphy thing this summer one of the suits they tried to get me to wear was one of your dad's ones and only that it wasn't period wise it wasn't right it was just a, that bit too modern I think it was kind of 70s rather than, and we were 50s and obviously the character that I was playing would not have had cutting edge fashion at that stage so we were kind of really dressing me 40s style um, which is why I love the costume department particularly Neve in the Abbey and, and the rest of the costume gang in there that level of attention to detail where yes this is a 50s play yes the lads coming home from America and England will be in sharp 50s suits you're from the backwater of rural Ireland you're not gonna, like you're just going to be in the same trousers you were in five or six years ago um, so yeah I mean no but I love that that was like for me that was a Harry Potter moment you know when they give Harry Potter the wand and the wand chooses the wizard rather than the wizard choosing the wand putting on a suit like that I was going, and it fitted like a glove man mm. it was amazing putting that on but, I, but say, I, I love it the other suit that you wore in I think it was the second act of the house scared the daylights out of me because when you're sitting in the pub oh, yeah. uh, with your dark 
blacky kind of browny hair that you had and, and you just looked like Harry Perkins oh, yeah. a very British cool <laughs> and like that was a weird moment for me yeah. and you do I mean I'm looking like dad now as I get yeah. older but there were times on stage when you look and carry yourself yeah, as, I, as I, he did but that's great because he was a leading man and you exactly, have that gravitas I, I do I get that a bit and people say I look more like him on stage than I do in real life um, and that's fine by me Jesus you know if you're going to be like anybody on stage go for one of the best we've ever produced I have no problem with that at all that's, that's absolutely fine by me on a personal level, I do find you tetchy from time to time. Yeah, I can okay. be obnoxious, that's fine. Yeah, no, you, but, but are you happy? Are you relaxed? Because you seem to be angst-ridden a lot. I'm just fucking busy. You know, I have to say, the last two and a half years, um, which brilliantly, you know, the birth of Rise Productions coincided with the birth of my daughter. And do people uh, know where Rise Productions came from? Well, Rise Productions comes from Ashley Productions. Absolutely. We grew up on Ashley Rise, uh, and the company that you and Mam ran when we were kids was uh, Ashley Productions. Yeah, Ashley because Productions. we sat there with 10 minutes to go to the deadline. <laughs> said, what are we? Mormack, Martin McAnally, McAnally, Martin, Mormack, yeah. Eng, Bill, Bill Ang, Blue, yeah. ah, fuck it. Ashley, Ashley Productions. Ashley Productions. So. And from that time, I said, right, if and when I get my own production company, it's going to be because we lived on Ashley Rise. You took Ashley, only left Rise for me. <laughs> so Rise Productions, that's where Rise comes from. Um, but what happened was, and again, oh man, I'm going to sound like such a wrestling nerd. And I'm really not. Like, I don't watch wrestling at all. No, hang on a second. Uh, just for the listeners. Right? Oh, God. Uh, you no. came with me to a disco <laughs> that I was doing in uh, way down in the middle of Connemara. Yeah. And on the way home, and you were quite young. Were yeah. you 10 or 11 oh, or 12 Jesus, maybe? No, I was younger than that. Younger. Well, you talked... From half two in the morning for three hours back to Dublin, wrestling the whole night. So yeah. don't tell me you're not a wrestling nerd. No, I am, I am a big wrestling nerd, but I don't, I don't watch it actively weekly anymore. But I do follow, uh, like I've about, I'm like, I might have 40 books on wrestling, mm. histories, biographies, autobiographies, because I, I, like, I like to study the theatricality of it. You were going to do a master's? Yeah, I do. I still want to go back and do a master's on it. If I can find the time, I will. Because um, I love it to bits, because it is it is theatre distilled down to its purest form, also in a very crude form. Look, you know, grown men in spandex and baby oil throwing each other around, going, "I'm gonna get you this Saturday," is you know, it's not high art, but in terms of the fundamental building blocks of what we do, it is old style Greek drama, good versus evil, conflict, the very essence of drama. It is conflict manifested in the ring. You know, some of the storylines are ridiculous, some of the acting is atrocious, but the basic building blocks there is just, you know, incredible. And um, this was a point about Rise Productions yeah, in what way? Rise Productions. <laughs> Jesus, I've no idea. What okay. was I going to say? Yeah, no, I know what I was going to say. I know around that time there was a big push of kind of indie wrestlers, independent wrestlers, um, feeling that they had a, a degree of talent that wasn't getting the push that maybe they felt they deserved. Uh, and you got the likes of people like CM Punk, who's now become you know world champion. Uh, Zack Ryder, who started up his own YouTube channel and by the end of the year had become the US champion. People like Colt Cabana, who I've mentioned before, whose format I've ripped off for this. And, and just that attitude of, of going out and you know doing it and making things happen. Um, and uh, and that, was, you know, that was the thing with Rise. I was, I was sick and tired of waiting around for the phone to ring and not having the opportunities there to create work for myself. And also, uh, and this probably won't be popular either, I was pissed off with a kind of a perception that there was an awful lot of work being made around Dublin um, that wasn't particularly good. What was being championed was being, you know, heralded as this great thing, and that kind of. Setup. Do you mean in the big theatres? Do you mean everywhere? I, I mean everywhere. I mean right the way from the biggest houses down to the small fringe venues. Um, there was an element of work going on that was that was sloppy in places, that was lazy and complacent in places, and stuff that was new for the sake of being new and just wasn't very good. And yet it was being heralded, and this kind of celebration of mediocrity wound me the fuck up, and I went bollocks. But there comes a point where you go, okay, well. Are you going to sit in the in the pub and whinge about it to your actors at the end of rehearsals on a Friday? Or are you going to get off your ass and do it? Um, and so then the whole Rise Productions thing and fight night happening um, came. And I went, okay, well, look, let's go and do it. And the great thing was that, obviously, the, the work that we've done to date has been across all the different mediums that we've kind of covered. Um, but obviously, predominantly, fight night has taken up a lot of it. But, you know, different things like the radio version and other shows that we've done and the podcast whatever, have all gone pretty well. And it's very rewarding for me to see... Uh, that I'm going, well, okay, if I wasn't happy with what was being made before, I'm now making what I am happy with. I'm going, this is what we should be making. And if that's being well-received and being popular and being well-attended, then I'm going, well, then there's an element of vindication in that. But in terms of me being just pissed off and angry, I'm not. I'm just busy all the time. I work my ass off. Because that thing of those pro wrestlers thing, it's just about, it's about the hustle. Um, if the opportunities aren't being handed to you on a plate, go out there and fucking make them happen. Um, and so, like, certainly the last two and a half years... I couldn't tell you, like there's been very few weeks where I haven't been doing 
14, 15, 16 hour days, six, seven days a week. And not only just kind of the physical training end of things for fight night and stuff, but just the, produ the producing end of things, which I'm completely new to still, trying to learn as much about directing, which I'm still very new to. Um, and just, just hustling, just to make it happen, creating those things, getting the Arts Council applications in, bringing people to negotiate a tour over to here or, or whatever else, just making that stuff happen. I mean, the work that went into the podcast, like by the time we finish this, it will be in excess of 500 man hours. And look, it'll be a lovely archive there for future generations, but it's been ball-breaking work. But I'm doing that work because I have to, you know, get out there and do the work. And, and, it, and it's a funny thing because it's the big thing that makes me happy when you have the podcast episodes with Aaron or with Brian Burroughs or whatever, and you hear how hard they work. And it is that thing of, you know, the harder they work, the luckier mm -hmm. they get. And you see it with me as well. It's been, it's been great. I've seen some fantastic theatre in Ireland over the last year. And I particularly enjoyed, for example, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And to see that at the Abbey was just brilliant. Yeah. But I've also seen some stuff, and I get a pain in my ass when I see what I call Emperor's New Clothes. Yeah. And is that just a lacking in me as a theatre person that I'm going, I don't get it, or is it actually crap? Uh, well, both. No, and, and no, like there, you don't have to get everything. You don't have to enjoy everything. Like, if you are into art and paintings you can love a beautiful landscape watercolor but not be into expressionism and that's fine too um i think there is a, a large element of emperor's new clothes around a lot of the work that's being made around dublin at the moment by younger companies uh, and not not only younger companies but you know there's a thing of oh we have to do a a, a vibrant deconstruction of a meta theatrical presentation of a reinterpretation of you go fuck off Tell me a decent story. But also, I mean, the thing that winds me up about it is that uh, it's like um, conceptual art uh, where, the, where the, the, the goodness of it, the value of it, is in the concept rather than the execution. And that to me is just ludicrous. Well, we could all just have a great idea about a show. I'm a great idea about a show where I do all kinds of awesome things with awesome people and awesome things happen. Well, Grant, that's just an idea. It's the execution. It's the skill in how it's presented is where the artistry is. Mm. Um, and that's what winds me up about it. And that's where I do think there is Emperor's New Clothes going, oh, it's, but this, you know, amazing. It's so important. This work is so important. It's dealing with all these great issues. Fuck off. Do you know what I mean? And, like, and the thing that Fintan O'Toole, who I actually have an awful lot of time for, with this repeated rant about people aren't making um, dramas about the crisis. I tell you, if the Abbey put on a play tomorrow morning about a banker going through the banking crisis, I'd fucking pick at the place. Because that's not what I want to see. Because where's the artistry in that? That is a documentary. Put it on primetime. Put a report in your Irish Times. Anglo, the music is coming well, to okay, the yeah, Borgosh so Energy yeah, Theatre so that, as so a piss take, I suppose. Yeah, a bit of fun. Happening. But it, like the idea of... Um, like the idea that to respond to the crisis, a that it's the fucking duty of theatre to respond to the crisis, um, in the first place, I, I'm not sure that I'm sold on. But the idea that we should be doing plays about bankers or plays about people in negative, I go fuck off. And like it's that thing. Well, look, Arthur Miller, when he was writing about the McCarthy trials, didn't write a play about the McCarthy trials, or didn't do a piece of uh, meta theatrical documentary theatre where they used actual transcripts from the McCarthy trials to kind of do a damning indictment. Bollocks! He wrote the fucking Crucible. There was a bit of artistry involved, a bit of talent involved, a bit of hard work involved. That's what I want to see. I'm in one of my rants. I'm in no, one not, of my rants. You're not, but the fuck thing... It, I don't care, it's true. But for me, I have to care about the people I see on stage. Exactly. The characters. And if they exactly. engage me, because a couple of times I've been at things and it can be the best acting in the world on one level, but if the writing isn't there to support it, if you, if yeah. you don't actually care about the characters, well then, it's Why a wasted bother? night. Exactly. And you know what? It's also become a very expensive night to yeah. go to the theatre now. Well, no, I don't know if I'll sign up to that. I really don't. If you have a situation where you're willing to shell out 80 or 90 quid to go and see Britney Spears or Rihanna in the O2 and you can get into project at, you know, a disc or you can, I tell you what, get into the Abbey for tickets prices from as low as 13 euro. Now you're talking about the same shows that they tour over to the West End mm. and, are, and are selling proper West End prices. I, I do fight people on this. I don't think theatre is an expensive night out. I really don't. And I think uh, in terms of, you know, the kind of the work that goes into it, um, I think it's pretty good value for money. When you get like, you know, good shows in the good houses and even, not even in the good houses, but you know, your company like the rough magic of the world, the Druids, the Abbey, whatever else, there is a certain level of quality below which it won't go. Sometimes the elements of a show come together and it's great. Sometimes the elements of the show don't gel together and it's not a great show. But it will never drop below a certain bar. For, you know, for certain organisations, it'll never drop below a certain bar. And realistically, if the Abbey Theatre, our National Theatre, is doing tickets from 13 euro 
uh, and you're going to pay 100, 120 to go and see Bruce Springsteen, then no, I don't have room for people. But they may, be, they may be once in a lifetime concerts that you would want to go and see, but you want people regularly going to theatre. That's true. Look, Paul McCartney's once in a lifetime. But, you know, Bruce, how many times has Bruce Springsteen been here in the last few Indeed. years? Many times no, Leonard, it's Cohen, a fair point. Leonard Cohen's been here in the few years. You know, th- those, th- people have used that argument with me before, and I don't buy it. I don't buy it. The problem is there is no respect for theatre in the country, is what I would argue. I mean, you can have a show where uh, taxi drivers, you know, uh, what do you do? I'm an actor. Have you been in Fair City? No, I haven't. What would I know you from? Well, do you go to the theatre at all? No, not really. Well, then, but fuck, like, what are you talking about? Of course mm. you're not going to know me. Mm. Um, you know, like, yes, there are TV stars who do, you know, reality TV shows, whatever else, and that's an avenue people are welcome to go down. But that's not what the theatre business is. It's not what acting really is in this country, because being honest with you, there isn't, this, but again, this won't be popular. Jeez, I'll hang up so many people have to dry. You know, the scale of this country, the size of this country, is there really a film industry here? Just about. Is there a TV drama industry here? Just about. I mean, if you want to be an actor in this country, you will work on stage. That's, that's where you'll do 90% of the work you do. Yes, there are the Colin Farrells, the Killian Murphys, the Colin Meanies, whoever else will go and go and do that stuff. But they are very few and far between. If you, you, know, if you think of an Irish actor in your head, that's someone who's on stage more often than not. You know? Tough question for you. Okay. You're a married man. You have yeah. a beautiful child. Yeah. My granddaughter, yeah. Kyla. Uh, you're 31 yeah okay and you're based in Ireland yeah you haven't like many people taken the boat taken the boat and based yourself in London or in America yeah do you lack ambition Um, I would think not genuinely I would think not Um, obviously there would have been opportunities I mean okay myself and Louise are together forever since we were kids since we were still in school Um, and yes I'm mortgaged and married and childed and all the rest of that stuff now but uh, I don't think there's any lack of ambition there. I mean, if anything, the, the big advantage for growing up in this family was that I saw exactly what was possible, that a man from a little town like Bunkrana or, you know, Maville could, um, could go and win three Best Actor BAFTAs uh, and be up there in the mix for Oscars and whatever else, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, no, I, I, I have never had an inferiority complex of, no, a little Irish fellow like me couldn't go and do it. I absolutely believe that there's no reason why any of us can't go and do it. And um, but the thing with me is, I have absolutely no desire to go over to London and be another paddy off the boat, waiting tables around um, London city centre, trying to get auditions put together, whatever else. Um, because harsh reality is, for the vast majority of the lads who've gone and done that, that's what's happening. That is the reality of their lives. Now there are some brilliant exceptions. You look at people again, people we've had on the podcast, like the Paul, um, the Paul Reeds of the world, the Rory Keenans of the world. They're over there playing lead roles in the West End, and I'm delighted for them because I love them to bits because they're great fellas. But for every Paul or Rory, there's another twenty Irish lads who are over there kind of going, no, you know, I'm going to stick it out. I'm doing this. Well, obviously, I'm working in a coffee shop at the moment, and over here, back in Dublin, there's this conversation. Oh, well, things must be going really great for him because you know he's in he's in London now or he's in LA now. Well, he's in LA fucking serving coffee. We're here and we're working week in week out, and you know. I, okay, when I went over to see Paul and Rory do the show over there, I caught a good bit of theatre over in, in the West End. And you're talking about, you know, big Julie Walters, people like that, you know, Rory Kinnear, all these big West End stars. And I'm going, I'm looking at them going, there's no difference between that and Declan Common or Owen Rowe or Cathy Belton or Dervil Crotty or whoever. I mean, us at our best is exactly the same as anybody else at their best. Yes, there are bigger audiences, there are mm. bigger financial rewards, there's a bigger movie industry over there. There are things to do. And, you know, like I said, Brilliantly, a lot of my mates are over in those bigger places doing really big things. Um, but for me, I would need to have some kind of a show to go over there and do it rather than just arriving. And, you know, you look at the touring opportunities that the Abbey throws up or that Pan Pan throws up or obviously the Druid lads at the moment and, you know, taking over the world. You look at the awards that Aaron's won over in Broadway and stuff. Those opportunities are there for you if you stay based in Ireland and then go and jump on it then. Go over be the toast of Broadway in a big Martin McDonough play with Druid and then go, now I'm going to capitalise on this. How important do you think something like showing a bag is and what it has done for performers and writers? Absolutely phenomenal uh, initiative and I will be eternally indebted to the crowd that put it together. Obviously, predominantly Gavin Costick because it was his brainchild, but you look at the work that um, Dublin Fringe Festival put into that, the massive support that they offered, what the ITI have done, um, Irish Theatre Institute, in terms of the support for Show the Bag and ongoing support for me as a theatre artist uh, and Rise Productions generally has been phenomenal. Um, uh, and also Fishamble, who were there, who were kind of the third um, part of that uh, 
Troika, if you want. <laughs> Where are the Germans? <laughs> exactly, you know, in, in terms of looking after us. Um, it, it's been such an incredible initiative. The balls to go ahead and do it. They're just the, the sense to look at a situation where you're going, well, okay, during the Celtic Tiger period, the Fianna Fáil-led government uh, had buckets of money and, to be fair, invested it in the arts. The only problem was that the only language they understood was bricks and mortar. So they built an arts centre at every crossroads in the country. Now there's no money to programme work into them and there's no money to give to the arts council to create the work for the actors. So you've got actors with no work and venues with no work to go into it. And Gavin had they said, well, this is stupid. Let's create small-scale, stripped-back touring productions that can go and do it. Um, and I saw it, and what it, what it did for me was, I mean, Fight Night, in, in its original conception, was a one-man show about a Gaelic footballer um, that I had started getting the idea for like years ago, running on a treadmill in a gym in Port Marnock, and I go, what would you do if you had like a really physical show like this about, a, about an amateur sportsman? And, and it was then that I decided to kind of sprinkle in the third generation stuff. He's a third generation sportsman, obviously I'm a third generation actor. But the weird thing about the whole fight night thing was that people, a lot of people kind of went, oh, so that's how you feel about your dad. In fact, I think even you might have felt, Jesus, this is stuff he hasn't been telling me. Indeed, go, indeed. Like the relationship between dad junior and senior couldn't be in any way further from our relationship. We get on like a fucking house on fire. It's why I've asked you to do this. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but it's, uh, you know, the Show on a Bag initiative was a massive thing, but it's a, it's a, it is symptomatic of the way Dublin theatre and Irish theatre is changing in the last couple of years because of the recession. Because we're now in a situation where the old model of you have to be a company, you have to have a full-time office, a full-time administrator, and all that, jeez, I'm going to piss more people off, all that waste of money. Like the idea of running a full-time office with full-time light and heat and full-time phone and full-time internet and full-time administrator to only do one show for three weeks of the year is insane. Like it makes no sense. So this kind of move towards production hubs and sharing facilities and stuff is absolutely the way to go for the foreseeable. And I love it and I would love to see it um, further than whatever else. But you look at, I mean, even things like Culture Ireland, the support that Culture Ireland have given us across so much of the work of the last while, yes, the trip to Glasgow, yes, the trip to Finland and whatever else, but even simple things like um, Culture Ireland bankroll and the reviewed section of the theatre festival, which has been so massively important. You look at something like Philly McMahon, your friend, uh, his play Pineapple running at the moment, Amy Conroy getting to bring back um, both of her shows, us getting to do um, Fight Night as part of the theatre festival. I mean, you can't overstate the importance of a, a fresh new company with their first, their, like Fight Night was our debut show, the first thing we ever made. The seal of approval to say Dublin Theatre Festival, internationally renowned Dublin Theatre Festival, puts its seal of approval to say you are good enough to be part of our festival. The doors that opens for you is, is immense. That kind of level of support is brilliant. And that wouldn't have happened without Culture Ireland. I love them to bits. They're brilliant. And that level of support is happening throughout the industry. Okay, you're banging on about all doing 24-hour, 22-hour days. Oh, I'm so busy. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. And you took on the podcast and it has been phenomenally successful. And the variety of people that are listening to it, yeah. you know, from all over the world and staying in touch with Irish theatre and the insight that it has given has been absolutely fantastic. Do you regret doing it? Is there anything about it that you would change now that you're coming up to the end of one year of it? I'm, look, I'm delighted I did it. Um, I will never ever do it again. Uh, you know, I, I joke every week about kind of you know I regret not charging for it. I don't regret not charging for it because if we had charged for it, it wouldn't have happened the way it did. It wouldn't have got to the as as well. The magic that is it. that it is is what it is. Yeah, you know, um, it's like it's one of the, look. I am I, I am very glad I did it because you know genuinely the whole ethos of as we say supporting, promoting, and celebrating Irish theatre is what I come back to all the time. I'm a theatre fan. I want people to be out there supporting Irish theatre. Um, but also, look, you know, you've got to call a spade a spade. Look, this is... You've got to be honest about these things. A show like this, in effect, is an hour-long infomercial for Rise Productions, primarily, and secondarily, me as Angus O. McAnally, freelance actor as well. And there's, you know, there are benefits that come with that. You can't get away from the fact that it had been a couple of years since I'd last been in the Abbey. And then the podcast comes along and within three months I'm back in there. Now, you can't necessarily connect those two things, but it can't have done any harm, you know? So I'm glad, like, I'm glad I did it. It was something I wanted to do. And it did stem from that thing of, of, of with Phyllis Ryan dying and with Tomás McConaughey as well, losing those two people last, you know, in the last year. So I went, wow, the nature of our business is it's transient and it goes. And, uh, and I wanted to do a time capsule. I wanted to have 52 weeks 
of a snapshot of Irish theatre. And look, there are there are gross uh, omissions in terms of people we haven't got to. Um, like the idea that we're going to finish this, but this is kind of revealing, I guess, a little bit about who we have lined up and who we don't have lined up for the last two episodes. But the idea that we're going to get through this without having Darvla Crotty, or the idea that we'll get through it without Gary Hines, or you know, even people like Michael Keegan Dolan, who is my all-time hero, or you know, actors that I really look up to, like Marty Ray or Tom Von Lawler or stuff, who I adore. You know, the idea that we're getting out without having them in, you know, that's a shocking oversight. But it is what it is. We were never going to get a fully comprehensive thing in the space of a year uh, and even each individual interview there's stuff left out of each of those because we couldn't talk to people for two and a half hours um, or certainly couldn't ask people to listen to it for two and a half hours um, so I, look, I, I regret to some extent not getting a few people in that I would have loved to have gotten in but that's the nature of the beast it is what it is but I'm, I'm, I'm very very glad I did it it has been an insane amount of work like I, the thing is I often say to myself I wish I hadn't done it weekly because the weekly thing is just just the schedule of that is pretty punishing. Just the constant thing of of always having to look a couple of weeks in advance of having a guest lined up, uh, and you know because a lot of the people we've had on have been pretty high profile, pretty successful people in their field, uh, and just getting them uh, you know getting availability with them has been tough. And there's been people for whom it has been like two or three or four months of an ongoing negotiation before you can get them on. Um, and so there was an awful lot of that work. And if you think of any of the standard interview radio shows on RTE or whatever else um, that there'd be a full team of researchers and producers and all that around that to coordinate all that this you know within Rise Productions this was a solo run for me I mean the, the podcast has been my baby Brian hasn't really been across it um, and so it's been a massive massive workload like the thing like, uh, you know the sums on it are it will be in excess of 500 man hours which is a huge amount of work to put into something like this. But I think it'll be worth it. I do think it'll be worth it for a number of reasons. Um, to have that archive there for people now and into the future is great. The fact that it's given people um, a forum to talk about stuff. And I love hearing from actors who say, I'm sure one of my best mates is that director or that writer or that actor. And there was stuff I learned that I never knew about them, even though I've been best mates with them for 20 years. And that's been a good thing for me because when I've been, a lot of them, you know, the majority of people have been my mates, luckily. Uh, and even chatting to them, there are questions I can ask within the format of the podcast that I couldn't ask them in real life. So it's been lovely to get that. Um, and also just, you know, in terms of, like I said, just the movement to the models of, of what we're going to do as Rise Productions, um, this was something we could do, uh, something we could afford to do uh, in terms of creating, you know, a, a year's worth of content without needing 40 or 50 grand's worth of an Arts Council bursary or whatever. To, to go and do it so uh so yeah I'm, I'm i'm really really pleased i've done it it's been a lovely journey but never ever ever again on a personal level for you as an actor and as a director as a producer or whatever you've worked in shakespeare you've worked as a one man you've worked yeah. in modern theater your know, performance corporation yeah um what was the mad one about the vedetas and all that at the Lisa Lamb was in it and Dara and or, oh, or Sago, 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 yeah, Sago, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that, wonderful. You've worked comedy, although I don't really associate you with comedy per no, se. Me neither. Um, but in terms of your big map on the wall of yeah. things that need to be done still, yeah. or the kinds of theatre that most excites you, what's missing? What have you not done? What do you want to do? Oh, I'd like to do a bit more film and TV. This last year was good. I mean, that insane situation of doing the, the TV thing down in Galway while doing the show in the Abbey, which is just the maddest thing I've so ever done. So you're commuting every day with yeah, the driver. exactly. Like, I was working 22-hour days, still getting this bastard and podcast out for these motherfuckers listening to it. Uh, <laughs> in brackets, he loves you. I, love, I do. I love you all deeply. But Jesus Christ, I mean, working 22-hour days like that is insane. That's stupid, and, and, and it'll kill you. And I did get sick. And it was one day on set where I literally couldn't stand up. Um, and mercifully, it was kind of a short day on set. I could just get through it. Um, and I say get through it. It was a Friday, so I could get through that, then do the commute across from one coast to the other, go in, do the show in the Abbey that night, get up at the crack of dawn the next day to do two shows in the Abbey, and then rest up on the Sunday. That was getting through it. Um, but I was glad to get that. That was a nice, big, solid stretch of work on camera, and it had been a while since I'd done that, and it's a while since I've done that kind of a long chunk. I mean, I think, realistically, you look back to something like Pride and Joy that I did with Owen Rowe and Michelle, his real-life wife, as, as his wife in the thing, and, you know, again, Rory Keenan with that and Gemma Reeves. That's the last time I did something where it was that consistent throughout, you know, a movie or a TV thing like that, where it's not just showing up for a couple of days like the Ella Enchanted thing which I still hold on to as my all time best showbiz story Anne Hathaway if you're listening I love you darling she loves me too though so that's okay 
Well, she's on the, the little hidden bits, the extras exactly, on the DVD. Man, DVD director's commentary saying how awesome I am. And she's right, I am awesome. Not as awesome as she is. <laughs> Hi, Anne, I love you. Um, yeah, no, so I, I would like to do a bit more film and TV stuff, and that is something that, without giving too much away, we are looking at with Rise, um, just because we have to shift production models for us because uh, we're not going to be in the realm of getting the kind of Arts Council funding we need to make the kind of shows we want to nobody make. Nobody is, I think. No, exactly. Well, the, the way is. things are going, nobody yeah, will be in that position. Yeah, but the thing is, we, we are that bit later to the party that we have that bit less of a track record behind us um, that it will be even more difficult. And so we have to look at different ways and how you can do stuff, uh, kind of micro-projects, like the Tear Down the Wall show that we did for the festival um, last year as well, which was just insane. Your first ever Dublin Theatre Festival having two shows in it. Um, but like that, that was kind of a concentrated thing where we could get in, myself and Brian, um, because with the way Brian works, Brian, of course, Brian Malarkey, the other half of Rise, um, with the way he works, kind of day job stuff, there's only so much he can he can commit to us in terms of being hands-on uh, for intense periods like that. And so that kind of a, a micro-project like that where we just lock off four days to create a whole new piece of theatre in four days is absolutely something he can do. Um, so we're looking at stuff closer to that for what we'll be doing for the next while. Uh, it, but, you know, personally, ambition-wise for me, um, I feel like the house, actually, I feel like the house in the Abbey pushed me over from being like a kid in my 20s to being a grown-up in my 30s. Um, and hopefully, I think in, in, the, in the minds of casting people and directors and whatever else, they're now looking at me not as a 20 to 30 age bracket, but, you know, you know, th- not 30 to 40 either, but yeah. somewhere in between. But I'm a little bit, little bit more You've mature. matured. Yeah, Absolutely. a little bit. And, and like you say, that thing of, you know, not even necessarily playing leading men in terms of the central role in a play, but just that older thing um, that I can handle that now as well. I'd like to see myself playing a bit more of those kind of older parts as well, I think. Given that it is a tough business, yeah. which... As you know, we love, you love, the family loves, or whatever. But do you feel that it's too easy for people to do a course and then train to be an actor? Or think that, I mean, should it be harder for people to get through courses because there are such limited availabilities for work? No, you get weeded out very quickly. I I do think you get weeded out very quickly. And someone said this to me recently, I can't remember who it was, but they said that those, like the only people, the people who stay in the business are the ones that have to stay in the business. Because if you have any sense, you get out. Particularly as, you know, okay, you come out of drama school and you're 21, 22, 23, and it's all great and you're getting gigs and whatever else, and then things slow down. And, you know, you can suck a lot of that up when you're 23 or 24, and you don't have a mortgage and you don't have a wife and you don't have kids and you don't have to worry about health insurance or schools or any of that kind of stuff. But as you kind of get past 30, the real world kicks in and you go, well, actually, I can't justify this anymore. It was nice while it lasted. But really, it makes no sense, and people fall away. But those that absolutely have to do it, they're the ones that stay around. Um, and, and, you know, it's the nature of those kind of training courses that you will always bring in, like with my course in Trinity, that, which has now become the Lear course, that you're bringing in whatever, 14, 15, 16, knowing full well that if five years down the road, two or three of them are still working, that's a pretty good ratio. I mean, again, our gang was the exception that you still have all those people working. That That's highly unusual um, and it helps that Trinity was that course of a certain calibre to begin with um, but for the most part and, and there are courses out there not naming anyone, any one of them in particular but you know there are a number of, of the actor training courses out there where, um, where they need to be bringing in the added revenue of having extra people in and, and, and to an extent it's there to kind of bolster just the running of the course and whereas you know even just on the law of averages people will fall away there are people there you're going realistically this isn't going to happen um, and you know, it is a tough business but if you can't take it go and sell insurance or do whatever else for me two sounds that send the best possible shiver yeah. up my spine is the of an audience as they begin to take their seats and you yeah. hear it on the tannoy and to get a knock on the door from the stage manager saying Five minutes, please, yeah. or whatever. I love that. I don't understand people who run away. From, I'm at my happiest when a microphone yeah. is on or when I'm going on stage. And I don't understand the many, many people that I meet on a daily basis for whom it would be a nightmare yeah. to be on stage. What for you is the buzz pre-show? I, I love it all. I really do love it all. And it's funny, the fight night experience and, and training to be, a, not sorry, training to be a fighter, is such, I can't say that because that's not true. I didn't train to be a fighter. I trained to be an actor who could convincingly play a fighter. But you were very convincing. Yeah, and, sure. And I mean, I, I put myself through Kenneth that. Egan was very impressed Indeed, said, Olymp- that man could handle himself. I'll tell you what, man, seeing an Olympic silver medalist in the front row in that show was a very, very <laughs> interesting experience. Scary. Oh, man, I tell you. Um... Yeah, no, but it, the, my my knowledge of the fight game now is really interesting because that that whole maxim from the fight game of of train hard, fight easy, 
absolutely holds true for uh, for acting. Um, if you work your ass off in the prep, in rehearsals, in, and in your preparation before you even come to rehearsals, whatever else, by the time you get to opening night, for me there is no fear because I, I have put myself through every permutation of, of what could possibly happen in that show in the rehearsal room. I've worked my ass off. I know I have it done. Um, and so th- this is what you've trained for. I mean, and by training, I mean either training for a boxing match or, or training for a show, as in rehearsing for a show. This is what you've trained for. This is the easy part. This is the bit you love. So if you put yourself through much worse stuff in your training camp, and by training camp I mean rehearsal period, than you'll ever have to face on stage, this is the bit you could go out and let it sing. Just go out and do it and enjoy it. And I absolutely adore that. I love being on stage. I really do. I love that magical connection between two actors on stage. And what I love even more than that magical connection between two actors is when we then let the audience in on that connection. And it's what I refer to as, I can never explain this properly, but I refer to it as a flux capacitor moment. You know, the flux Marty, capacitor, we got to exactly, get you back to the future. Back to the future because the shape of the flux capacitor is a Y shape. And I think that, that that central point of the Y, if you think of that as kind of the three points of the Y are, are the audience, Actor A and Actor B. And that point in the middle where we are completely connected on stage and the audience is absolutely let in and welcomed into that moment, that's the moment of magic. That's what I'm looking for as an audience member. As a theatre fan, I always get back to that. That's what I am first and foremost. I'm a fan of theatre. Um, I just happen to be the one who gets to go and do it. I'm the kid who at 15 was saying, imagine one day you could play for Man United. And now they do. And that's what I am. That's what I do. I get to work with my heroes all the time. Uh, It's beautiful. It's a joyous, joyous thing. Well, Angus Hogg McAnally, third generation actor, director of Rise Productions, uh, producer of this fantastic podcast. Can I tell you one thing as a parent that you won't fully understand yet? But having spent a number of years with your mother, Billy Morton, looking at you on stage saying, that's lovely. And I wonder, would he tweak that and would he try to recently over the last year, watch you in a variety of different roles and say, you know what? There is nothing we need or can do. He's on his way. The pride that we have in seeing you on stage and realising in the way that my dad had said to me, you owe it to be the best you can be. To watch you on stage gives us as parents a sense of pride in the work that you do that is tangible. I love you loads and you're a great, great actor. You're a credit to your trade and to your profession. And I wish you great success in the years to come. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it, folks. This week's guest on podcast number 50 for Rise Productions, uh, the brilliant, the wonderful, all those friggin' words that he uses every flippin' week on the podcast. My truly best mate, the wonderful, the person I've wanted to talk about so much for so long himself, uh, Angus Og uh, McAnally. And that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what's going on around Dublin and indeed around the country. The Abbey Theatre has the picture of Dorian Gray featuring the great uh, Mike Sheehan and downstairs in the Peacock they have uh, Shibari by Gary Duggan. Uh, the Gate has The Last Summer and Viking Theatre in Clontarf in Dublin of course has Fight Night featuring the brilliant Angus Og McAnally who's a third generation actor and of course he of uh, the McAnally clan yawn 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 anyway that'll be followed by a short run of Joist and then the return of Tuesdays with Mari uh, Theatre Upstairs where Fight Night plays at the end of the month has Manhattan Whispers and Mission uh, that's a Gary Duggan double bill Bewley's has Down by the River with Michael Bates. Um, the Beatles show is at the New Theatre. And at Theatre at 36 is uh, Marie Claire. Uh, Axis and Ballymun has four short Beckett plays by Mouth on Fire Theatre Company, where brilliantly the cast includes husband, wife and son combo of Pather Lamb, Geraldine Plunkett and Marcus Lamb. So that should be well worth checking out. And as we move around the country to Belfast, the Lyric has The Long Road by Sheila Stevenson and The Mac has Huzzies. Uh, down in the real capital of Ireland in Cork, the Opera House has Romeo and Juliet from Corkadorca, and the Pavilion has Sweet Pang is Innocent. And in Limerick, the Bell Table has Ray Scannell's one-man show, Mimic. So that's us. Uh, that's episode 50 in the books. What a landmark for the podcast and indeed for Rise Productions. And I personally have been delighted to have been a part of it. Angus Og will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. But in the meantime, this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally. I'm Angus McAnally. We'll see you next week. You won't see me. Thank you.